Revelation 14. We're going to look at the first five verses today. And this is kind of a bit of a respite from the intensity of what we've been studying the last few weeks. Let's read verses 1 through 5 together. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Let's pray. Father God, we pray as we look at this passage today that you would give us insight, understanding, and uh, that you would just increase our uh, knowledge, Lord, concerning you and what you have planned for us in the coming days, in these last days in which we're now living. We thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. So after a graphic description of the tyranny of the beast and the false prophet, and by the way, I have nicknames for these guys, uh, the Beastie Boys, uh, also known as Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. So I know we're going back a ways. Marky Mark is actually uh, <laughs> Mark Wahlberg, believe that or not. They had a group back in the day. But we're now uh, presented with an extremely encouraging and uplifting passage here about the 144,000. And this is another one of these sections where it's not necessarily chronological. This is kind of a combination of an overview, a flashback, and a fast-forward section. We're looking back at the origins of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, and we're looking forward to the end of the tribulation and the triumph of Christ and His saints. All of that is combined here in this chapter. In contrast with... Uh, Many others who become martyrs during the tribulation, it would appear that the 144,000 lived through the tribulation period by divine protection from God. So here in verse 1, John, who's the recipient of this vision, he's known as John the Revelator, but he's not the one revealing, he's the one receiving the revelation from God through the angelic host. I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion. Uh, who might that be, do you suppose? Jesus, the Lamb of God. Standing on Mount Zion, and that would be Jerusalem. There with the Temple Mount. And with him, 144,000. This would be those Jewish evangelists that were introduced to us in chapter 7, verse 4. Having his... Now, if you look at some of the other translations, it expands a little bit. Here it says, having his father's name written on their foreheads. But if you look at some others, it says, having his name, Jesus, and his father's name written on their foreheads. God is making sure that his own are sealed here with the 144,000 back in chapter 7 before the mark of the beast is instituted. You remember that the mark of the beast, 
of the Antichrist is either on the right hand or the forehead. And here we have, with 144,000, they have the name of Jesus and God the Father on their foreheads. That's why I encourage people to keep space open for God's markings on your body. Okay? <laughs> you know, Bob Dylan did a song back in the 60s, Everybody Must Get Stoned. And what's coming in the near future is everybody must get marked. Either by God. You know, everybody's going to get marked, ultimately, either by God or by Satan. Who would you like to be marked by? God, absolutely. It's coming. Revelation 7, 2, and 3. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So God is holding back the final push, the heaviest part, the last half of the tribulation where the wrath of God really is unleashed without measure, but it's held back until they get these servants, these special 144,000 Jewish evangelists, until they are sealed, set apart, uh, sanctified. The New Testament uses the word sanctified for those who are set apart for God's holy purposes. Now, as I mentioned, it would appear that they all survived the tribulation, whereas many others will not. But they're not the only ones who will survive. We have in Matthew 25, 31 through 46, the parable of the sheep and the goats, which is really not a parable. It's actually a prediction, a forecast of future events where Jesus talks about the fact that when he comes back with us, with the saints, to establish his kingdom here on the earth, there's going to be a separation of the sheep and the goats. All the people who survived the tribulation, there'll be two kinds of people left, believers and non-believers. The believers are the sheep, the goats are the non-believers. The sheep will be welcomed into the millennial kingdom of Christ. We've got to have somebody to repopulate the earth because you and I will be immortal. We will have been elevated to the next level. Jesus says there won't be any marriage in heaven. We will be like the angels you and I as immortals will not be procreating anymore. We won't be producing any more offspring. And yet we're going to have this thousand-year millennial reign of Christ on the earth. So somebody has to repopulate the earth. When God created Adam and Eve, he told them, be fruitful and multiply and fill up the earth. The goal was that they would fill the earth with others who would be worshipers of God. But that kind of got sidetracked, didn't it? So once again, during the millennium, these surviving mortals, the sheep, the believers, who survived till the end of the tribulation, will then be responsible for repopulating the earth, hopefully with godly people, that they will teach their children to worship God. And so many of the Gentiles and Jews who turned to Christ in the last days will somehow escape martyrdom, which once again reminds us that nobody can lay a hand on us without God's permission. Now, um, my wife was sharing with me that one of the ladies that's been attending lately, uh, they uh, go to the line dance class together that we have over here in the gymnasium on Mondays and Tuesdays, 
that she said after last week's service she, was, she left scared. And it's not my intention to do that, although I have to say, when it comes to non-believers, our hope is that we will scare the hell out of them and scare the heaven into them. I'm not cussing. It's a real place. We don't want anybody to go there, do we? But as a believer, if you're already a believer, then you shouldn't be scared. The very worst that could happen is they kill you. And if, if our focus is in the right place on eternity, on being with God and His eternal kingdom, physical death carries no fear for us. It's just a promotion. Physical death is a promotion for the believer. But see, we're kind of soft and wimpy in America, aren't we? We're not like most of the rest of the world where Christians have suffered and been tortured and killed for the last 2,000 years. We're spoiled. But it's my job as a pastor to get you ready for whatever may come along. Hopefully the rapture comes first. But if it doesn't, are you going to stay with God or are you going to walk away? Are you going to cave in? Are you going to back down? Are you going to wimp out? Oh, I didn't really mean it. I'm not really a Christian. Don't hurt me. In the end, that won't do you any good anyway. Again, I've said so many times, we will either hang together or hang separately. So let's hang together, shall we? And in the meantime, Jesus is coming soon. But these sheep waiting here on the earth for the return of Christ with the saints, they will be like uh, the uh, welcoming committee as we return to the earth with Jesus. Verse 2, I heard a voice from heaven like the voice, or one translation says, roar, roar of many, brackets, rushing waters. I heard a voice from heaven like the voice or roar of many rushing waters. And this is associated, of course, with the voice of Jesus, with the voice of the Father. Remember, we have at least two occasions in the, in the uh, Gospels where God spoke from heaven. When Jesus was baptized, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And then on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus is meeting with Moses and Elijah, same thing, God speaks from heaven. Boy, I can't wait to hear that voice. That's going to be amazing. Revelation 1.15 tells us regarding Jesus, the glorified Christ that we meet in Revelation chapter 1, His voice was as the sound of many rushing waters. Won't be able to mistake that voice. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. And so there's this heavenly proclamation and it's accompanied by worship. They're worshiping, they're playing their harps. God is speaking. The 144,000 are standing on Mount Zion with Jesus. And I believe this represents a victorious statement as we are looking forward to the end of the tribulation and the second coming of Christ. Verse 3, they sang as it were a new song before the throne. So, one written especially for the occasion, especially for the 144,000. And the song is a song of victory because they have successfully stood against the Beastie Boys, Marky Mark, 
and Satan. It's a song that's never been sung before, for such a conflict has never been fought before. Jesus said this would be unlike any other time in human history, and he meant that in a very intense, harsh way that this battle, this last end times battle for the control of this planet, and as I said last week, who will be worshipped? In the middle of the tribulation, full-on Satan worship will be instituted as the whole world is commanded to worship the Antichrist. And that's been the battle from the beginning of human history. Who will be worshipped? And we know who, right? It'll be God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It'll be Jesus on the throne in Jerusalem. So today is the time to get on the right side of things. Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. We don't know how much time is left. Until now, at this point, in these coming days and weeks and months ahead, the kingdom of Christ on earth has been usurped. But now a new song is sung in anticipation of his taking possession of his blood-bought kingdom with his saints. The 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. The term translated redeemed literally means, as you probably know, purchased. Purchased. And not even the angels can learn this song because they have not experienced what it means to have been purchased by the blood of Christ. Only humanity, only human beings can fully know, understand, appreciate, and experience that redemption that purchase that Christ made with his own blood to buy us back out of sin and death into life and light. These are the ones who were not defiled with women for they are virgins, or the King James Version says, kept themselves pure. Now, ladies, don't be offended because it says they were not defiled with women that they've kept themselves pure because that is the natural state that God created us to seek out companionship in the biblical manner. One man, one woman, a monogamous married relationship. All the other things that people do outside of that we know are unacceptable to God and yet it goes on all the time every day. But the idea here is not that it's bad or evil or wrong for a man to be with a woman, but that these guys had a higher calling in Christ. And by the way, that higher calling can apply to women too. I've, I've noticed a large number through the years of female missionaries that remain celibate for life so that they can just dedicate their lives to serving God, to serving Christ. We, of course, you have the nuns in the Catholic Church. But um, it's not an easy calling by any means. The Greek term translated virgin here is hardly ever applied to men in the Greek literature. Isn't that interesting? Probably because men in ancient Greek culture rarely were virgins. It literally means never having had sex with someone of the opposite gender 
and that, so that includes not having been married. This type of sanctified virginity, if you will, was practiced most often among a Jewish sect known as the Essenes. Uh, they were the ones responsible for hiding all of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the caves of Qumran. We've had the opportunity to go there more than once. It's over there by the Dead Sea, about an hour out of Jerusalem. Quite an experience. But the Essenes practiced this type of celibacy, and uh, their teachings were actually quite similar to those of Jesus. Some even believe that John the Baptist was a member of this sect. Matthew 19, 12, Jesus says there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. And so some people, sometimes they're born with a, some kind of a genetic defect, a birth defect that makes it impossible for them to have a normal physical relationship with someone of the opposite gender. There are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And of course, you know probably that in ancient times, particularly uh, kings, sheiks, men of uh, high standing, power, financial uh, position, and so forth, would have harems of women. And uh, the men that they would have guard those harems were um, castrated to prevent any potential hanky-panky. And so some men were made eunuchs, and in some cases in, in, uh, in warfare, that was done too to kind of, quote, neuter the opposition. And there are eunuchs, Jesus says, who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And so then, again, Jesus lists this third category where men are, it's speaking primarily of men, but it can apply to women as well people who choose to remain celibate so that they can dedicate themselves fully to serving God. And again, it's a very high calling. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. And so over in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul goes into a lengthy discussion along these lines also. As you know, Paul remains single. There's some speculation that perhaps prior to his conversion, he had a wife she may have rejected him because of his conversion to Christ, but we know that throughout the entire time that he was in ministry for Jesus, preaching the gospel, uh, first to the Jew, then to the Greek, he was the apostle to the Gentiles, that he remained single. 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 29, Paul says, But this I say, brethren, the time is short. Now, when you read the writings of the New Testament writers, and they all talk about how Jesus is coming soon. The time is short. If you are a cynical, skeptical type of a person, you would look at that and say, well, we might as well hang it up. It's been 2,000 years. He never has showed up. But the point is that God has wanted every generation of believers from the very first generation up until this generation to have their eyes on the coming of Christ. In some circles, that's discouraged some circles within the church. That idea of really being excited about the return of Christ, keeping our eyes to the sky, look up for your redemption draweth nigh. In some circles, that's discouraged and they, it's considered to be a distraction. But from what I see, all the, the apostles, the New Testament writers, 
They all had their eyes to the sky. They were all expecting Jesus in any moment. And if they were, I would propose that we should be too. And I would also propose that we're a whole lot closer now than they were then. At some point, it's going to happen. And when you look at what's happening in the world today, it's got to be soon. In fact, the Bible says, unless those days be shortened, no flesh would be saved. And we are now at the point, they were not at that point 2,000 years ago, but we are now at the point where actually we do have the capacity to totally annihilate ourselves if the wrong people get a hold of the wrong buttons and the wrong Wuhan labs. Isn't it amazing how now all of a sudden, oh, well, we think it really did come from the Wuhan lab. You Really? I would have never suspected that. Oh, I thought it came from some animal in the meat market. No. Did you ever buy that? And then come to find out Dr. Fauci and others within our own government were part of developing the dadgum virus. You know, God has given us His Holy Spirit. We have wisdom. We have insight. We have discernment. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Don't listen to the news, the fake news. Don't listen to the politicians. Listen to the Holy Spirit. I can't tell you how many times in my life God has shown me, don't go there, don't get involved in that, don't be a part of that, and time and time again it has proven to be right. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Listen to God. I don't want to scare anybody. I really don't. Unless you're not saved, and then I want to scare the hell out of you. But I share this stuff not because I'm trying to scare you, but because I want you to be awake. Not the liberal wokeness, but really awake. There is a report that a group of scientists from India, and they do have some good scientists in India, by the way, they, during their studies on coronavirus and corona vaccines, they claim to have discovered that there was an HIV element injected into the vaccine. I'm not sure why that would be done. But I sure hope we don't see people showing up with HIV now after getting the vaccine. We are at the end of time, folks. I've told you, I don't know how many times, the devil's goal is to destroy the human race and he has human cohorts who are willing to help him with that project. Do you realize that? The Georgia Guidestones reducing the Earth's population to 500 million. If you don't think that there's a plot already in place to take out the vast majority of the people on this planet, then you're not awake. Again, I don't, I'm not afraid of that. I'm not afraid of any of this. But I want to blast all the lies and the falsehoods right out of your hearts and minds, and I want you to know the truth. I want you to be awake so that nothing catches you off guard, nothing catches you by surprise, 
Jesus said you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. I want to be free in Jesus. How about you? My wife said, go for it. Let it rip. Cut loose. I said, there's nothing in this message to cut loose about. (laughs) But I always find a way. I think I was supposed to be reading out of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Okay, so the time is short. Is that where we were? I think that's how far we got. The time is short. So that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Yipes, that's not going to go over well with the ladies, is it? But you know, all the apostles, uh, now sometimes we read that they did take their wives with them. We know for the three years that uh, they went out with Jesus while they were in training, all their wives and families had to stay at home. And so, if you want to be a true disciple of Christ, a true follower of Christ, whether you're a man or a woman, you're going to have to make sacrifices. You can't live like everybody else. I've seen so many people who identify as believers, but they can never really fully engage because there's too many distractions. And I've seen time and time again where people will enter into a marriage relationship as believers. One has a calling on their heart for ministry, perhaps the other one doesn't. And ultimately, the one that has the calling will have to forsake that calling to make the other person happy. If you really love your spouse, then you need to set them free to serve God and put your own desires and interests you know, it, goes, it flies in the face of all this modern marriage seminars and books and so forth. All this has done is create a bunch of people who have all these expectations that you need to meet my needs. No, I don't. God is the one who meets your needs. Yes, husbands and wives have responsibilities. Don't get me wrong. I get extreme to make a point. Do you understand that? I get extreme to make a point. But I've seen so many people held back, even in in just something as simple or basic as attending church because the other spouse doesn't want to go and they don't want you to go. Misery loves company, right? If I don't want to go because I'm mad at God, I don't like God, I don't believe in God, then I don't want you to go either. Well, you know what? That's where you draw the line. The apostle said, We serve God rather than men. We obey God rather than men. God says you should gather with the body of Christ. You should worship with the body of Christ. You should study the word of God with the body of Christ. And if your spouse says no, then you say, sorry, I'm going to go do what God told me to do. You have to draw the line. You know, this whole idea of submission and so forth, as long as it's not unbiblical, illegal, or immoral. But if somebody wants you to do something that's unbiblical, illegal, or immoral, you don't have to do that. You understand? You shouldn't do that. You should obey God. All right, we've got to get back into this here. Time is short so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. But you know what? That's going to be up to your wife if she's going to be willing to let you serve God, do what God's called you to do. That doesn't give you the license to abuse her, or let's flip it over and say it's the wife. I've always tried to encourage my wife to pursue her desires, her vision, her calling, 
She had a ministry called Heart, Harvest Evangelism and Repertory Team with dance and drama and so forth, performance, evangelism. And uh, she took that team all over the world for about seven years. And I supported her in that. I was proud of her when she started the school. It's never been my desire to hold her back from doing what God's called her to do. And if it meant I was sitting at home sometimes by myself, so be it. You get the idea? And it works both ways. Those who weep as though they did not weep, those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use this world as not misusing it, for the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be without care, Paul writes, for he who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. Paul's not just not saying that's wrong. He's just saying there's a higher calling if you can handle it, if you can pursue it. There's a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy, bo holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. So basically, this passage, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul's talking about, he says it's better to marry than to burn with lust. If you can't control yourself, yeah, you need to get married. Because you don't want to fulfill those desires any other way except in the context of a heterosexual marriage relationship. But then he goes on to say, hey, if you can handle it, there's a better way. If you're single, and I hope this would be encouragement to single people here today, because what I see all the time is the single people are desperate to get married, and the married people are desperate to get unmarried. <laughs> Hello? Hello? I'm just being honest, folks. You see, as human beings... In the flesh, we're never satisfied. We're never happy. Wherever you are, you want to be somewhere else. My buddy uh, Terry Cook used to say, I feel a whole lot more like I do right now than I did when I first got here. <laughs> he had some good ones. Paul's message in this passage is to be content right where you're at. If he said you're married, don't seek to be unmarried. If you're unmarried, don't seek to be married. And especially, we are in the last of the last days. It is harder now than perhaps it ever has been to, to make a good match. I feel bad for the young people today. I'm telling you, it's so difficult to make a good match, to be equally yoked, as the Bible says. How many times I've seen it oh, I, I met this new person, we're going out, and then next thing you know, they're engaged, and blah, blah, blah. And, well, they told me they were a believer. Oh, great. They can tell you anything. Have you really waited, watched the fruit, watched the evidence, find out who they really are? Well, no, I know I'm not supposed to marry a non-believer, and they said they were a believer, so that's good enough. No, that's not good enough. That's not good enough at all. Do they identify as a believer, or are they really a true follower of Jesus Christ? Because I've seen people dragged away time and time and time again. People who are right on track, following God, serving God, and then boom, they're gone. You don't think the devil does that all the time? 
And the devil's goal, if he can't snatch your soul and drag you to hell with him, and once you're born again, he can't do that, then the next best thing for him is to try to make your entire life here on earth as miserable as possible. And one of the best ways to do that is to get you with the wrong person. Now, what, if you're sitting here thinking, well, oh my goodness, I am with the wrong person. Well, sorry. <laughs> sorry, it's too late. You've got to work with what you got. It'll definitely improve your prayer life. You don't fix one mistake by making another mistake, you see? At some point, you've got to stop and say, you know what? I'm not going to make any more mistakes. I'm going to listen to God. I'm going to follow God. I'm going to trust God. Right? This is definitely not the message I had in mind. So the, the bottom line with this 144,000, they're not going to have time for women. They're going to be celibate. They're going to be virgins. And I believe this description tells us that they were pure prior to being singled out for this special calling. And it says that these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Remember the old nursery rhyme? Mary had a little lamb. It followed her wherever she went. But here it's the other way around. The 144,000 are following the lamb. And again, this phrase and the next one confirm that these men are born again. They are Jewish believers. But all true sheep will follow the lamb who is also the chief shepherd. First Peter 5, 4, when the chief shepherd appears, return of Christ, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. John 10, 27, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And then what happens? They follow me. Some Christians have it all wrong. They think God's supposed to follow them around to do their beck and call, right? No, 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 no. We're supposed to follow him. We follow the lamb. And you know, remember King David? He was a shepherd. He was a worship leader. He was a warrior. And he did some pretty gnarly things in his life, if you recall, like committing adultery, like having Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, murdered by putting him at the very front of the battle there at the wall where they, he knew he would get killed. And yet, amazingly, in the scriptures, it tells us that David was a man after God's own heart. How do, you, how do you reconcile that? I think it's right here. Because David, for all his flaws, all of his faults, all of his sins and shortcomings, he did follow the Lamb. He had his moments. He had his failures we always see in the scriptures that he confessed, he repented, he was broken, he was humbled. But he was not a man after God's own heart because he was perfect. And I don't believe these 144,000 will be perfect either. These were redeemed or purchased from among men. Redeemed, saved Jewish Christians, called out, sanctified, set apart for a very special calling during the tribulation to bring as many Jews and Gentiles as possible to Christ. It says, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. 
So the salvation of these 144,000 and their subsequent ministry will result in the salvation of a larger group of Jews who will in turn, who will turn to the Lord at the end of the tribulation. Isaiah 2.3, if you're taking notes, Romans 11.15, a couple of good verses regarding that. Isaiah 2.3, Romans 11.15. Revelation 14.5, and in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. No deceit or no lie. They will be men of integrity, celibate, totally sold out to God, men of integrity. And it reminded me of Psalms 15, a verse that's come back to me many times over the years. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? So this speaks of up close and personal, intimate relationship with God. Who is qualified for that kind of a relationship? Again, we know we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith. We're washed in the blood of the Lamb. But there's some things here that God tells us about what He expects of us. He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. See, we've, we've lost sight of that today, folks. This idea of truthfulness, honesty, integrity. He who does not backbite with his tongue nor does evil to his neighbor nor does he take up a reproach against a friend. Yeah, it's amazing how in this day and age we now live in that friends are so quick to turn on one another. I remember when I was growing up, it was this bond with my buddies and I, particularly in our band that we had together. And People would try to entice us away. Oh, leave that group and come and play with us. We were, no, no, man, we're a band of brothers. We're, we're sticking together. You don't see much of that today. Verse 4, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. And that's another thing. It's become harder and harder for people to love what God loves and hate what God hates. We're, all, we're just too quick to rationalize, to justify. But God hates sin. He wants us to hate sin. Not the sinner. We love the sinner, but we hate the sin. And the lines have been blurred. The lines have been blurred. In fact, that we were talking about this in men's prayer. I believe it's um, somewhere around 51, 52% of evangelical Christians now embrace same-sex marriage. We're no longer hating what God hates, loving what God loves. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who swears to his own In other words, you made a promise, you made a commitment, and then you realize, you know what? Yipes, I probably shouldn't have done that. That's going to probably cost me something. That's going to create problems. But the honest person, the person with integrity, the godly person, the righteous person will say, you know what, I'm going to do it anyway because I gave my word. Yeah, I'm going to lose something here. Maybe it's money. Maybe, who knows? Maybe it's time. But I'm going to keep my word. Those are the kind of people that God says can come into his tabernacle, who can dwell in his holy hill. Obviously, this description of their integrity would most certainly include absolute loyalty to the Word of God as opposed to the theological lies and false doctrine of the Antichrist. 
And it, we're told they are without fault or blameless before the throne of God. Again, it doesn't mean that they're perfect or sinless, but they're definitely sold out to God. 1 Corinthians 1.8 from the NIV, He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Does that mean that we're going to stand before God perfect? Now, He will perfect us, but we won't be before Him because of our own perfection. You will be blameless. He will keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless. And that just happens by walking with God, being quick to confess our sins, to repent, to turn from them, and to turn back to God. And He will present us blameless or faultless before the Father. First Thessalonians 5.23 Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, set you apart. That's what it means to be sanctified. To be justified means, in God's eyes, it's just as if I'd never sinned. That's justified. Sanctified is to be set apart by God for His purposes. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved or kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we read that the 144,000 are without fault or blameless, it's because they continue to keep their eyes on God, to follow Jesus, and to continue to practice a lifestyle of confession and repentance of sin. But God will keep us. He will keep you firm to the end. He will sanctify you. He will keep you blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's only by the grace of God that we are found blameless in Him. And by the way, that's what the enemy is always trying to heap that blame and that shame back on you again, right? We need to follow God, to walk with Jesus, to receive His forgiveness. People talk all the time, well, yeah, I know I'm forgiven, but I just haven't been able to forgive myself. Really? Whoever gave you permission to do that? Whoever said that you are the perfect sinless son of God and therefore you have the right to forgive your own sin? You don't have the right to forgive your sin. Only God does. That's another lie and deception from the enemy and it's preached from pulpits all across America. Learn to forgive yourself. Really? I can't forgive myself. I'm a vile, wretched sinner. Only he can forgive me. Forget about trying to forgive yourself. What that tells me if you're in that mode where you say, well, yeah, I know I'm forgiven, but I can't forgive myself, then you really haven't fully received the forgiveness of God. Because if you fully received His forgiveness, then you won't feel shame and guilt and blame. And you won't feel like you have to forgive yourself because God's already forgiven you. The enemy is so subtle, folks. Here's another one. I know we're supposed to be closing. We got five minutes or six minutes. <laughs> you can't love anybody else till you learn to love yourself. I think preachers have used that one too. That's another lie from the pit of hell. You, you were born loving yourself. <laughs> Feed me, change me. <laughs> Mine. First word every kid learns. Second one, no. You were born loving. You don't have to learn to love yourself. You've got to die to self, the Bible says. 
Take up your cross and follow me. That's another lie from the pit of hell. You, you can't love anybody else till you learn to love yourself. You can't love anybody else till you die to self. That's the truth. We've talked about this a while back. Believers that don't even have a biblical worldview. We need a biblical worldview. We have been brainwashed by the prince of this world, this deceptive, the philosophies of men. We need to be washed with the water of the word, transformed by the renewing of our minds. Stop thinking like the world thinks and start thinking how God thinks. It's only by the grace of God that we're found blameless in Him. You can forgive yourself all day long. Paul said, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't necessarily mean everything. I'm just paraphrasing. It doesn't necessarily mean everything's okay. I've cleared my own conscience. Whoopee. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And there again, you could make the case that by learning to forgive yourself and learning to love yourself, you've got something to boast about. You've accomplished something. No, it's the gift of God, this gift of faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The Bible says, let he who boasts or brags, boast in the Lord. Brag about your God, how great he is, how awesome he is, how wonderful he is. Let's stand. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes for a moment. I'm going to ask if you need prayer this morning, if you'd raise your hand, please, for yourself or for someone else. Just lift it up there. God sees that hand. Father, we lift each one of these up to you. Thank you, Lord, that we can call upon you, that you hear us when we call. You promised us, Father, that if we would ask you anything in the name of your son Jesus, that you would hear that prayer. And so we don't come doubting. We come with a sense of expectation, Father, that you will hear our prayers. And although we know that you don't always answer them quite the way we might like them to be answered, you do answer our prayers and you do have our best interests at heart. So I lift up those with health issues, that you pour out healing upon them. I lift up those with financial issues, that you would provide for them through whatever means you choose to do so. Lord, and, and just impart faith to each one here this morning that's raised their hand, that they can believe you and trust in you for the healing of their bodies, for their material needs, for financial provision. Father, we lift up those with emotional issues, Lord, anxiety, fear, doubt, worry. Lord, we ask you for deliverance. We ask that you would lift those things off of them and give them peace. You promised, God, that you would guard our hearts and minds with the peace that passes all understanding if we would just bring everything to you in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. So we lift up these things to you and we pray that you would guard our hearts and minds, that we could just be filled with your peace, your joy. Lord, for those with relationship issues, Marriages that need healing, that need restoration, that you would just do an awesome miracle and, and knit these couples back together. Lord, for those who are trying to make decisions about relationships, that you would guide and direct them by your Holy Spirit.
Lord, you know every person here. You know every need, every situation, every issue. And we lift them up to you, and we thank you and praise you that you hear our prayers and you do answer our prayers. We just ask you to fill us with faith, fill us with trust. And, Lord, we thank you right now for the answers that are on their way. We thank you for this time in your word today. And we ask that you receive now our offering of praise as we close out this service. In Jesus' name, amen.